0: A warning to our listeners, this story contains graphic descriptions of violence. Please take care while you listen. On a cool February evening in 1960, a family huddled together in a cemetery in northern Austria. Dressed in somber colors, they were there to mourn the loss of their patriarch, who had died four days earlier. The cool wind swirled as they watched the coffin being cranked lower and lower into the earth. 200 yards away, unbeknownst to the family, two photographers were hiding. They huddled behind large tombstones, trying not to be seen, speaking in whispers. They pointed their lenses at the mourners and secretly snapped their cameras desperately trying to get as many photos as possible in the late afternoon daylight. Cut to, nine days later, to a small apartment in Vienna. Two Israeli spies pour over those very photos, the ones secretly taken at the funeral. They're on the hunt for one man, former Nazi lieutenant Adolf Eichmann, and they're hoping these photos might confirm his identity. The spies comb through the photos with a third guy, a local who's been helping them track down their elusive target. This helper, he's not a spy, not a special agent, but he's dedicated his life to a very specific pursuit. His name is Simon Wiesenthal. He's a self-proclaimed Nazi hunter, From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanen. 62 years ago this week, February 18th, 1960, Simon Wiesenthal reportedly gave photos to Israeli intelligence agents to help hunt down Adolf Eichmann, former Nazi officer and notorious architect of the Holocaust. The hunt for Eichmann spanned the globe and made Simon a hero. But like all historical narratives, this story gets a lot more complicated once you start parsing out the details. And the pursuit of justice is rarely straightforward. The hunt kicks off after the break.
1: Entering the final phase of victory over Hitler's Nazis, Yank armies swarm across Western Germany. The white flag of surrender flies all along the battle-torn route as our fast-moving armies sweep to a junction with the Russians.
0: In May of 1945, World War II was finally coming to a close in Europe. Allied troops marched into a war-torn Germany.
1: Prison camps and forced labor camps took a heavy toll of millions of miserable people enslaved by the Nazis. Thousands of these unhappy humans are being freed daily by the Allied armies.
0: The Allied forces dismantled concentration camps like the Mauthausen camp, one of the first large-scale networks of camps the Nazis had built. The Americans liberated tens of thousands of survivors in Mauthausen and nearby subcamps in Austria. One of those survivors was a 36-year-old man named Simon Wiesenthal, a Jewish architectural engineer born in modern-day Ukraine. In 1941, Simon and his wife were forced into a ghetto in Lviv. Then the Nazis separated them. And over the next four years, Simon was shipped around to several concentration camps. Simon survived. And when he was freed in 1945, he took on a special mission. You see, Simon had an incredible memory, and he'd spent his time in the camps making mental notes about all the Nazi officers he saw. And that memory was immediately useful to the Allied forces.
1: He volunteered at uh, Mauthausen to help the Allies identify war criminals. He thought, I could be useful here.
0: Documentarian Richard Trank makes films with the Simon Wiesenthal Center. He directed a film released in 2007 about Simon.
1: And he came up with the first list, all these people, these criminals that he encountered. And I think it kind of blew them away. Here's this guy, he's half dead, still in his camp uniform with these names. And so they put him to work.
0: And work Simon did. He continued divulging the names of all the Nazis he had encountered. He also began interviewing other survivors. And when he confirmed the names or whereabouts of Nazis or Nazi sympathizers, he passed them off to the Americans.
1: He felt that this is something he needed to do, to see people be arrested and tried in a court of law for the crimes they committed.
0: Obviously, Simon wasn't alone in pursuing this mission. This push for accountability finally came to fruition a few months later, in the fall of 1945, with the first Nuremberg trials. The Allied forces convened the Nuremberg trials to prosecute some of the Holocaust's most prominent operatives. In the first trial, 24 Nazi leaders were indicted, and it all took place in Nuremberg, Germany a city largely considered to be a center of the Nazi party. A very symbolic choice.
1: The United States of America present count one of the indictment that all the defendants participated as organizers or accomplices in a common plan or conspiracy to commit crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity.
0: Former Nazi party members testified in court leading to the conviction of all but three of the former Nazi leaders on trial. Twelve of them were sentenced to death. Others were imprisoned. But in all this testimony, the name of one man kept coming up. On paper, he seemed to be just a bureaucrat. But as more stories emerged, it became increasingly clear that he had been instrumental to the Nazis' plans for genocide. His name was Adolf Eichmann
1: he was in charge of overseeing what was going to happen to the Jews. In in Hungary, in 1944, in the last less than a year of the war, they killed most of the Hungarian Jewish community. Uh, A million people were, were put on trains and sent to Auschwitz. And the person who oversaw that was Adolf Eichmann.
0: Eichmann was in charge of transporting Jews, not just in Hungary, but across Europe. He created the logistics for the train transport system that carried people to concentration and extermination camps, shepherding millions to their murders. But by the time all of this came out during the trials, Eichmann had disappeared. A lot of former Nazis had gone into hiding at the end of the war. And as attention shifted to finding them, Eichmann was high on the list. As these trials were going on, Simon Wiesenthal was picking up the pieces of his life. After Mauthausen, he was relocated with other survivors near Linz, Austria. By some miracle, he reunited with his wife, who had also survived the concentration camps. Soon after, they had a baby. Simon decided not to return to his former career as an architect— Instead, he started working on behalf of survivors and collaborating with American intelligence agencies, helping them hunt down and search for Nazis. And he turned his attention to Eichmann, now one of the most wanted Nazis alive. There was a problem, though. Not only had Eichmann disappeared, apparently he was camera shy. Almost no photos of the man existed. And how are you supposed to find someone when you don't even know what they look like. Theories were swirling about what happened to him. Some believed he was still in Germany. Others were sure he was dead, something his wife had reported to local German officials. She claimed that he had been shot in Prague soon after the war ended. And so, by the late 1940s, the search for Eichmann slowed down.
1: It was also around that time that the U.S. War Crimes Office that Simon was working for decided, we've done our work, we have other things to do. That's when Simon decided, okay, I'm going to start my own operation.
0: Simon couldn't move on from the hunt, even though the rest of the world seemed to. The U.S. turned its eyes towards Russia and the Cold War— the U.N. Special Commission was starting the proceedings to partition Palestine and create a new Jewish state. And so Simon was left to do the work he had been doing, just now independent from the Americans. He interviewed survivors, collected information about Nazis and their whereabouts, kept tabs on their families and associates, and filed away his findings in case of future trials. And in all this... He discovered some very important information. Simon kept coming across official reports of Eichmann sightings, which meant that Eichmann was still out there hiding. So Simon became determined to help find him.
1: Now this was not easy work, and it was he was working from hand to mouth, he had a wife and a child to support.
0: To earn a living, Simon taught at an occupational training school for refugees. But hunting down war criminals while holding down a day job was pretty stressful, and it took a toll. He couldn't sleep, so he went to see his doctor.
1: And his doctor said, you need a hobby. And Simon said, I need a hobby. What, uh, hunting Nazis isn't enough of a hobby? The doctor said, no, no, you need a hobby to take you away from this sometimes. And he became a stamp collector.
0: Stamps. Fun, chill, totally unrelated to Nazis. Or so he thought. Simon wasn't stamp collecting alone. He found a small community of stamp collecting bros. One of those bros was a rather well connected Austrian baron. Reportedly, one day when the stamp collecting crew got together, Simon was telling the baron about his work searching for Nazis. The baron's ears perked up.
1: He said, You know what? I just got a letter from a friend who lives in, in Buenos Aires. And this friend told me that that pig, Adolf Eichmann, is living in Buenos Aires. He's working for the water company there.
0: This was the break that Simon needed, and it reignited his thirst for finding Eichmann's whereabouts. Simon met with an Israeli ambassador in 1954, letting him know of his discovery. The ambassador asked for more robust evidence. So Simon asked for $500 in order to send someone over to Argentina to confirm. But the ambassador wasn't interested. His focus was on the new Israeli state, not Nazi hunting. That is, until a few years later, In 1959, Israel got a second tip that Eichmann was in Argentina. A Jewish-German refugee in Buenos Aires reported that his daughter had started dating a young man, Nick Eichmann, and that Nick was living with his uncle, Ricardo Clement. The father was sure that Clement was actually Adolf Eichmann. This information got to the Israeli spy agency, Mossad, Some Mossad agents were sent to Argentina to check out this promising lead. And they did find this Ricardo Clement, but they couldn't confirm if he was actually Eichmann. Remember, they didn't have any current photos of him. And the man they found in Buenos Aires looked haggard and much older than they'd expected. But meanwhile, Simon had been keeping tabs on Eichmann's family in Austria. He caught wind that there was going to be a funeral and he hatched a plan to figure out what Eichmann might look like now as an older man.
1: In February of 1960, Eichmann's father dies. And and this is where the genius of Simon comes in. He knew that Eichmann's younger brother looked almost exactly like his brother. And he figured, okay, if we can get a picture of the brother will know what Eichmann look like, looks like now. We can compare it. So he sends two photographers to clandestinely shoot pictures at the funeral, and they get a good series of pictures of Eichmann's younger brother, which he
0: You might remember this scene from the top of the show. Simon arranged for some sly funeral photography, and then he passed photos of Eichmann's brother to Mossad agents. Those photos were then sent to agents in Buenos Aires to see if there was a clear enough resemblance between Eichmann's brother and Ricardo Clement. According to Richard, these photos were just the clue Mossad needed.
1: They determined that, yes, this is Adolf Eichmann. And not long after that, they basically kind of kidnapped him, spirited him back to Israel where they tried him. And this put Simon in headlines around the world.
0: Adolf Eichmann's guilt lies in the initiation, organization, and execution of the crime specified in the indictment. We shall prove his guilt as planner, initiator, organizer, and executor of the crime known as the final solution of the Jewish problem. On May 11th, 1960... Adolf Eichmann was captured. A little over a week later, he was brought back to Israel, where he would stand trial.
2: Israeli Attorney General Gideon
1: Hausner, the chief prosecutor, replies that no one except the state of Israel has sought to bring Eichmann to justice, and cites the Nuremberg War Crimes trials as precedent for this trial. Throughout, Eichmann remains icy calm, his fate at last in the scales of justice.
0: The trial took place in a new facility. A special bulletproof booth was put up around Eichmann. There was a huge crowd within the courthouse, and the trial was also broadcast to millions internationally, one of the first trials to be widely televised. People watched and listened to testimony from Holocaust survivors who told of the horrors of Eichmann's work, testimonies that reminded the world of those atrocities.  — On
1: the way, there were corpses lying by the roadside. There was no doubt that they were Jews. —
0: Eichmann pleaded not guilty. He claimed he hadn't killed anyone directly. He was just doing his job, managing the logistics, following orders as a lieutenant. The court, however, would find him guilty.
1: Now, in a 300 page judgment, Eichmann is
2: found guilty of crimes against the Jewish people, crimes against humanity, and war
0: crimes. Less than a year later, Eichmann was executed. After the trial, Simon Wiesenthal published a book. The German title translates to I Hunted Eichmann. He would go on to write other memoirs that filled in more details of the hunt. Simon's Nazi hunting story was also chronicled in some TV shows, a few documentaries. The world finally saw how Simon Wiesenthal, the Holocaust survivor turned Nazi hunter, had hunted down one of the most infamous Nazis. An incredible story, but one that wasn't entirely true. Certain details about Simon's involvement emerged years later that would complicate this version of events. We'll untangle those details after the break. Welcome back. Before the break, we learned about Simon Wiesenthal, Holocaust survivor turned Nazi hunter who helped track down former Nazi Lieutenant Adolf Eichmann After writing about his role in Eichmann's capture, Simon kept hunting Nazis. And he became one of the world's foremost advocates for memorializing those lost in the Holocaust, a pursuit that included, in his eyes, using the justice system to convict these war criminals. This is Simon in a 1980 interview for British Radio.
2: Only when the murders of tomorrow know they can never be safe— Maybe this will have a value. During this Nazi period, we had a such devaluation of human lives. These people must come before trials.
0: He became known as a public figure, traveling the world and writing about his work. One of his books landed on the lap of a teenage boy in Long Island, named Eli Rosenbaum.
2: I I read Simon Wiesenthal's 1967 book, The Murderers Among Us, which dealt at, at some length with Eichmann and his crimes and his apprehension.
0: Rosenbaum grew up to be a federal prosecutor and the director of human rights enforcement strategy at the U.S. Department of Justice. Over the years, outside of his day job, he became close with some folks involved in Eichmann's capture, former Mossad agents. And Rosenbaum started to realize Simon had told a bunch of different versions of the story. And not all of them lined up. For example, right after Eichmann was captured, Simon said he didn't have anything to do with it.
2: On May 25, 1960, two days after Eichmann's capture was made public by Israel's uh, prime minister, uh, Simon Wiesenthal gave an interview to the Times of London in which to quote the newspaper, which he, quote, denied a suggestion that he personally had something to do with Eichmann's arrest.
0: But then, a year later, in 1961, Simon published that one book, I Hunted Eichmann, telling a different story. And in that story, Rosenbaum says a lot of the details were, well, embellished. First of all, Simon hadn't really been aware of Eichmann's true whereabouts. At one point, he thought he might be in Argentina, but around the time of Eichmann's capture in Buenos Aires, Simon believed the Nazi was hiding out in Europe.
2: He wrote to the Israeli ambassador in Vienna to report that he believed that Eichmann had found refuge somewhere in, and I quote, northern Germany.
0: And those photos taken secretly at the funeral they weren't that instrumental in tracking down Eichmann. Rosenbaum found the unpublished memoir of a former Mossad agent, in which he wrote...
2: That Wiesenthal claimed that the pictures he ostensibly supplied to Israel were the only ones they had when they captured Eichmann is, 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 is quote, false idol boasting. And he added um, that Wiesenthal's claim that he had supplied the, quote-unquote, only photos that were at the Israeli team's disposal, quote, is simply typical of his impudence, as though he had been party to the capture plan, whereas, in fact, he had not the slightest notion of what was about to happen.
0: Why these embellishments to his story? Well, according to Rosenbaum, Israel was hesitant to officially claim credit for the capture of Eichmann. They didn't want Argentina knowing they had secret police operating within their borders for, you know, geopolitical reasons. And so into that informational void stepped Simon. Now, there's some historical disagreement as to how that happened. Some people, like documentarian Richard Trank, believe Simon showed an early version of his memoir to Israeli officials, who then asked him to remove all mentions of Mossad from his book. But no one really knows why Simon changed his story. What is clear is that the story he did publish is not entirely truthful.
2: It was, it was a great disappointment to me to learn the truth. But none of us is perfect. I prefer to think of the many uh, great and important things that Simon Wiesenthal did accomplish uh, in, in his lifetime.
0: How does one reckon with a story of great consequence when it comes from an imperfect vessel, particularly when the storyteller in question is also a survivor of some of the worst atrocities in human history? Rosenbaum insists that despite Simon's hyperbolizing, he still deserves recognition for the work he did do.
2: I I have to give Mr. Wiesenthal a lot of credit, a ton of credit, He was unswervingly devoted to seeing Eichmann and other perpetrators brought to justice.
0: Institutions like the Simon Wiesenthal Center and the Museum of Tolerance were founded in Simon's name. Institutions committed to fighting anti-Semitism, to memorializing past injustices, to the work Simon dedicated much of his life to.
2: I consider him to have been someone whose activism whose insistence, public insistence, and private insistence that Nazi criminals be brought to justice has played a preeminent role in ensuring that efforts to pursue justice in those cases has not stopped to this very day.
0: One of the people who's following in Simon's footsteps pursuing that justice is Eli Rosenbaum himself. Some call Rosenbaum a Nazi hunter, though he's not too fond of the term. He spent the last four decades at the Department of Justice searching out and bringing Nazis and other human rights violators to justice. He collaborates with a team of prosecutors and historians to ensure the truth of the Holocaust and other human rights crimes aren't forgotten. They push for accountability for those who perpetrated those inhumanities.
2: We won a Nazi case just two years ago. The hope is that by the example of the punishment of people who commit human rights violations or or any other crime, that others will be deterred from engaging in in that kind of egregious misconduct.
0: The work feels just as relevant now as it did in Simon's day. I mean, in the U.S., we're still fighting over how to even talk about what happened in the Holocaust. Just one of many examples, in January of 2022, a Tennessee county school board voted to remove the book Mouse from its curriculum. The nonfiction graphic novel tells the story of the author's father, a Holocaust survivor. The county's director of schools cited objectionable language and nudity as reasons for removing the book an erasure of one historical narrative in favor of shielding kids from naked cartoon mice. And forgetting about the Holocaust, softening the narrative, it has serious real-life consequences. We're in a moment where Holocaust denial and anti-Semitic attacks and rhetoric are on the rise. The American Jewish Committee reported that one in four American Jews had been targeted by anti-Semitism in 2021— And the Anti-Defamation League reported that anti-Semitic incidents more than doubled between 2015 and 2020 in the U.S. We saw rhetoric like this happen when white supremacists marched through the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2017. In 2018, a lone gunman killed 11 and wounded six at a synagogue in Pittsburgh after posting anti-Semitic messages on social media. In 2021, a Texas college student was charged with setting fire to a synagogue in Austin. And more recently, in January of 2022, four people, including a rabbi, were taken hostage by a gunman in their synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, just outside of Dallas. The legend of Simon Wiesenthal the Nazi hunter may have been embellished, But the message he spread allowed others to continue his work, to keep fighting for justice, to remind folks that this history is very much alive, and that forgetting this history has great consequence.
2: This is a warning for the murderers of tomorrow. I know what I'm doing against these criminals. It's not the answer for the tragedy. But when we pardon one genocide, Open the door for the next. And the history of man is a history of crimes.
0: Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Philip. Next week, we're skating on to one athlete's Winter Olympic dreams. And, you know, she quite ambitiously said that I want to participate in the Olympics and uh, I would like to win a gold medal one day. And I was like, okay, you know, there you go, girl. You go and try. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig and Amy Padula. Our associate producer is Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Maura Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toco Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. And hey, Not Past It is doing a live show. We're going to On Air Fest at the end of February. It's a festival that celebrates all things audio. So if you'll be in the New York City area on February 25th, come through. For tickets and more information, visit onairfest.com. Special thanks to Michael Berenbaum, Jonathan Brent, Thane Rosenbaum, Robert Berkowitz, Alice Gamble, Alex Kogan, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampat. Follow Not Past It to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Palanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week.
2: I'll put on my radio voice for you. No, I won't. Okay.